Bibles, please, to the epistle of 1 John chapter 3. Uh, Tonight we're in a second part of a study of verses 4 through 10. And here the apostle John is dealing with the subject of sin, and he's proving to us how that sin is utterly incompatible with the life of a Christian. Now, if you were looking for a place to go in the Bible where you would find what's expected of Christians, 1 John is a good place for you to go. Uh, It may be sometimes hard to understand how John approaches his arguments, and there are lots of twists and turns to it, and uh, some intertwining arguments as you go through this. But when you get through it and you begin to understand it, the, the difference between a true Christian and a false professor, you really can't make a mistake the way that John puts it. So John argues for the evidence of Christianity along three, uh, the line of three tests. And I keep repeating this because John keeps repeating it. In First John, we find that there is a doctrinal test, and there is a moral test, and then there's also a social test. So a true Christian is determined by what he believes about Christ and how he relates to Christ in his everyday life by obedience, and then also how he relates to others, how he loves them. And failure in any of those tests will reveal that there's a very serious problem. See, if a person doesn't have the right doctrine of Christ, and if the person doesn't live by the moral standards of God's Word, and if he doesn't love other people, then he's not really a Christian. And these are the themes that appear over and over through First John. And in these verses that we're studying tonight, John hones in once again on this issue of the moral test. How does a person live? Is there holiness in his life? Does he still practice sin? And here we have one of the Bible's definitive arguments on the subject of sin and its utter incompatibility with Christianity. And that was very important for the church when John was writing about this, and it's still important today because you have people that think that it makes no difference how you live. Uh, If you have walked an aisle, and if you have signed a card, if you got dunked in the tank, and you told everybody that you were saved, then you are ship-shape, you're ready to go, and it doesn't matter what you do afterwards, just as long as you said or said that you did believe. But these scriptures show us that that's not true. If you continue to live in sin, you are not a Christian. Nothing really ever happened in your heart, even though you might have done all of the things that I've just said. And John puts it here, uh, once you get through the arguments, it starts to become very clear. It's as simple as that can be put, that if you are not obeying Christ, and if you live in sin, then you simply cannot be a Christian. Now, if you'll look in the scriptures, we'll read these again, uh, as we did last week. First John chapter 3, verse number 4, he says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever hath not seen him, hath ne- uh, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God." In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. 
And my comment last week after we had just finished that reading is that there are some troubling verses there for us to understand. And we're in the second part now, and we're not going to be able to finish it all tonight, so uh, we'll, we'll get to all those troubling passages here that are here and, and try to figure those out for you. But the central question that we face in this part of the Scripture is this. Is it possible for a Christian to live like an unbeliever? And from there, we feather out into other questions such as how much sin can you sin? Can you sin at all and be a Christian? Does a Christian have to produce fruit in his life? And can you be a Christian without loving Christ? And those are the kinds of questions that are addressed here. And for most of you, when I state them like I've just said them, you don't really have any doubt in your mind what the answer to those questions should be. And you would be appalled at any suggestion that a person could be saved and not have a change in his life. I mean, it just doesn't mesh with the Christianity that you've learned about and what you've been taught here, that a Christian could live like an unbeliever and still claim to be a Christian. And yet, as we look across evangelicalism today, there are people who say all of those things are possible They say that you can live as an unbeliever, that you can have sin in your life, that you can live and never produce any fruit. And some even say that you can lose your faith and you could actually reject Christ and still be a Christian if at one time that you said you were saved. Now that's really the center of the Lordship Salvation controversy. There's a segment of Christianity, Christianity, that affirms everything that I've just said. And we thank the Lord for this, that it's really not a huge segment. But we also ought to be ashamed, woefully ashamed, that the ones who do believe this, among many of them, are independent Baptists. One of the uh, past editors of a large fundamental Baptist paper said that it's possible to be a Christian and never be a disciple of Christ. And that is a phenomenon that's peculiar to American Christianity. Because in other parts of the world, uh, there are believers that that would never accept that kind of nonsense. I mean, the idea that a person could be saved and, and receive Christ as his Savior, but refuse to receive him as their Lord, is foreign to their understanding of salvation. And the only ones that you find in other parts of the world that actually believe something like this are people who have been influenced by American missionaries. Now, in many other countries of the world, there are people that live in persecution because of their belief in Christ. And um, they, they want to take a stand for Christ, and they're fully aware that that's what a Christian ought to do. You ought to stand for the Lord as a believer and live like the Lord would have him to believe and receive Christ as the Lord of his life. But you have people here in America that are telling them that that's really not necessary. I mean, if you believe that a person can be a Christian and not be a disciple of Christ, not actually become a follower of him, then why go through all the hardships of being that and doing that? Well, John doesn't stand for that kind of an interpretation, and he was faced with people who believe the very same things. The Gnostics that he was faced with were unconcerned about sin. They didn't care about eliminating sin from their daily lives because they didn't think that it mattered. And whether it was because they thought that they had some deeply developed relationship with God that transcended the fact that they sinned, or if it was because they believed that the spiritual man was not actually affected by sin, John wouldn't stand for it. And so he he teaches against this. You can't have Christianity and sin because they're mutually exclusive. Now we're looking here at how 
John structures his argument against this. It runs a three, along uh, the lines of three different proofs. Uh, we, he looks at it from the standpoint of the nature of sin, and then also, uh, secondly, the purpose of Christ coming into the world, and then about uh, w- with the presence of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. And all three of those exclude the idea that both sin and Christ can reign in a believer. Now, last week we started with the first of these, and that was the nature of sin. And we have a definition of sin here in verse number 4. It says, sin is the transgression of the law. And we looked at that statement, and we understand it to mean that sin is lawlessness. It's not just the breaking of commandments, but it's the desire that lies behind the breaking of those commandments. It's the, the, the transgression, the desire to transgress. Sin is a desire to please self rather than God. And all, sin, all sin stems from that idea. Adam and Eve wanted uh, something more for themselves, and, and they thought that God was withholding something from them, and so they disobeyed God. Sin, the, the idea of self, was right there at the core. And then sin is also active disobedience. It's willful disobedience. We want our way instead of God's way. And if we never change from that, and if we say that it's possible... To, to still desire our way instead of God's way, then what have we been saved from? I mean, some people say, well, we're saved from hell. Well, why do people go to hell? Sin's the culprit. That's why people go to hell. And so if you haven't been delivered from sin, you haven't been delivered from hell. And then we also saw that sin is the character of the devil. Verse 8 says the devil sinned from the beginning. It's his character. And so people who live in sin have the devil's character. But if you're a child of God, you've been regenerated. You don't have the devil's character. You become a new creature in Christ, a new creation. We've received a new nature, and so we have Christ's character. We can't have Satan's character and Christ's character. And thirdly, we learn that sin is also uh, never harmless. As much as we may be fooled into thinking that sin uh, may not have an effect on us or we can have little sins and do little things and whatever we think that they might are, think that they, they may be, sin does have devastating effects. And we're not saved to have that, those effects still in us. So the arguments that we went over last week prove from the nature of sin that it's incompatible with Christianity. Now, John could have left it there. At least in my mind, the arguments are good enough that we could stop right there and say, well, we got this thing settled. It seems pretty clear to us. But John doesn't stop there. Instead, he goes on with another argument. And this argument, the second one, is based upon the work of Christ. Christ's work, Christ's objectives in salvation are proof that a a Christian cannot continue in sin. Now, if you look at verse number 5, we're given the objective of Christ coming into the world. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So we can start there with argument number one concerning the the work of Christ, and that is the removal of sin. One of my favorite passages is John 1.29, and this is where John the Baptist made that tremendous declaration of the work of Christ. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And you have to believe that, that John the Apostle had that verse in mind when he wrote these scriptures. I mean, John also is the one that recorded those words of John the Baptist. And so John the Apostle must have had those words stick with him all the rest of his life. Jesus came to take away sin. He came to remove it from us. 
And from that, we might be tempted to say, well, John means here that someday the sin nature is going to be taken away from us. Somewhere in the great wild blue yonder, when we get up to heaven, all of our sin is going to be taken away from us. We no longer will have the sin nature. We don't have to worry about sin anymore. We'll be glorified, and then we'll be delivered from sin's presence. And all of those things are true. Every statement that I've just made is true. We will be delivered from sin's presence. But John says sins here rather than sin. He's not talking about the sin nature. He says sin. And Christ came to work on this problem of individual sins so that we could be delivered from them. See, there's this little doctrine of sanctification that looms out there, only it's really not a little doctrine. It's a major portion of Scripture, a major doctrine of Scripture. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is our sanctification. And if a Christian could go on living in sin, then he would never be conformed to the image of Christ. And what would you do with all the passages that you find in the Bible that tell you to stop sinning? Why did Jesus tell the woman that was in adultery, go and sin no more? If she could continue in sin and that didn't matter to him, everything's fine, then why did Jesus even bother with it? You see, sometimes we have the idea that being saved is all about heaven. And so Christians walk around with a sour look on their face and they say, I'm not going to be happy until I get to heaven. And they expect to be morbid. And they're like the the people that I talked about on Sunday morning. They look like they drank pickle juice before they came to church. But you're not going to find that kind of an attitude in Scripture when it talks about how a Christian, what kind of demeanor he should have. Even when, when he was in prison, when Paul and Silas were in prison, they sang praises at midnight. They were in stocks, they were in a dirty, smelly prison, but they rejoiced. And Paul was always telling people to rejoice. He, he said, I even rejoice in my afflictions. I, I endure those things because that gives a greater opportunity to display the power of God in me. Now listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. There are lots of wonderful things that we could talk about that cause rejoicing in a Christian. Just knowing Christ, I mean, that causes a Christian to rejoice. But the greatest hindrance to our rejoicing would be to know or have it be true that we are not now being delivered from sin's power. Because what does sin do? Sin brings misery and sin brings strife. And so if you continue in sin, those things are still a part of your life. And so what comfort is it to say, well, Christ has not delivered me from sin? Sin is contrary to Christ. And so every time that we sin, to some degree we're being separated from Christ. Now, when I got saved and I'm sure it's the same in your life, you, you, you got a desire to live closely to Christ, and that's because Christ became the center of your life. Jesus is not a tack-on. He's not an add-on feature to all the other things that you do. When you get saved, Jesus Christ is the core. And if you can go on day by day with your mind clouded up with sin and being separated from fellowship with God because of those sins, then Christ really hasn't done anything for you, has he? On the first chapter, John says, fellowship with God is destroyed because of sin. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, that's the same thing as saying that if there is ongoing sin, 
then you are still in darkness. You have no fellowship with him. And the scriptures simply do not allow for that kind of condition for a Christian. Then if you look at the last part of verse 5, he says, and in him is no sin. And there we find the contrast between the character of Christ and the character of Satan. So the second thing to look at here is the character of Christ. The devil sinned from the beginning. That's what John says. Sin is his character. But the character of Christ, that in him there is no sin. In him, no sin. I'm not going to go back into the necessity of that aspect of Christ's character. Uh, We covered that extensively in the first chapter when we were dealing with the incarnation and also with the virgin birth. Uh, Christ cannot be our Savior if there is sin in him. But that's not where John's going with this argument anyway. It's included here, but I think he has something else in mind here because what happens when you get saved? Well, I want you to turn to the book of Colossians and we'll find here an outstanding statement by by Paul to explain this in Colossians chapter 1. And in chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul gives just a masterful presentation of the deity of Christ. He says he is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who created all things. Everything in the world, he says, consists by the power of Christ. In chapter 2, he continued and he said, In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And those are just outstanding statements about the deity of Christ and his omnipotence. But if you look in chapter 1, verse number 21, he's speaking here about how Gentiles have been brought into the covenant of grace. And he says in the 21st and 22nd verses, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So there's the goal of Christ. We're going from point A to point B. Point A is our sinfulness, and point B is our sanctification. And Christ died to get us from point A to point B. Now go down to verse number 27. He says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now the mystery that he's talking about here is that God would save Gentiles. It was a tremendous act of condescension for Christ to come and save the Jews. We we might make a case for that because we know the Jews are God's chosen people. But when you add the Gentiles into the mix, that Christ would die for Gentiles, that just rattles the brain. You can't figure that one out. But notice, though, the last part of the verse. He says, which is Christ in you The hope of glory. Christ in you. Now you put that together with 1 John 3 verse 5. In him is no sin. And Christ in you. You should be able to see where this is going. If Christ is in you and Christ has no sin. Then how is sin going to be compatible with him? If his character is no sin. And if he is in you. Then your character must be no sin. And so the presence of sin in a Christian's life is a categorical denial of Christ's life within him. And then we go back to chapter 2 of 1 John, verse 29. He says, If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So do you see how that fits? When we're born again, we receive the lifeblood of our Father God. Now just as you're born of your parents and you receive their genes... When you're born again, you receive, well, what you might call spiritual genes, so to speak. 
You receive the spiritual life, the righteous life of God that becomes a part of you. And so you are to reflect the image of the Father. Now let's go down a little bit further in our passage to verse number 8. And if you remember from our discussion last week, uh, we noticed that verses 8 through 10 are a repetition of the arguments in verses 4 through 7. Uh, John states the same things in a little bit different terms. And the conclusion of both of these sections is the same. No one in Christ will keep on sinning. So he says in verse 8, He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now here is the work of Christ stated in another way. His work is the destruction of the devil's work. This is Christ's work to destroy the devil's works. Now again, we could feed that into the long-term eschatological purpose of Christ. There, there's a cosmic conflict that's been going on for centuries. There, there's a, a struggle between good and evil. Uh, there's a a struggle going on, and it's not an abstract struggle. We're not talking about a struggle between two philosophies or two, attri- uh, two attitudes or two forces. We're talking here about a struggle between two beings, the reality of a struggle between two beings. One of those is divine, and the other one is created. It's a struggle between God and Satan, and it's not an equal fight, but that sparring goes on until in the eternal purpose of God that he destroys Satan and sin forever. And the revelation of Jesus Christ that we're studying on Sunday night is all about that. So in a sense, the work of Christ is to destroy the works of the devil in that cosmological sense, in, in, the, in the future sense of getting rid of the devil altogether and getting rid of all those minions and people that serve him. But we have to be reminded that God's grace... And God's work goes on in this life. God carries on his work through human instrumentality. And so we're the ones that preach the gospel. We're the ones that evangelize the world. And in order for us to do that, we have to overcome Satan. Because it's Satan's work to blind people's eyes to the gospel of Christ. And so that means that Christ is right now in the immediate. He must be overcoming Satan, he must be destroying the works of the devil. And that's because he has to end that stranglehold that the devil has on a person's heart. And it's God the Holy Spirit that has to open that person's eyes so that he understands the gospel of Christ. So Christ has to be right now overcoming Satan's power. Now we uh, go back to something that we studied in the earlier verses. Uh, We studied how that we are to abide in Christ. That's a command. And that's the doctrine of perseverance. And unless some of you think the doctrines of grace are the only thing I know, I'm not going to rehearse those arguments. But I will say this, that we learned perseverance is the means of abiding in grace. It's the work of God in us to cause us to remain steadfast. That, that's our perseverance. And so our faithfulness in Christ is sustained through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the means of our preservation. And if Christ does not destroy the work of the devil on an ongoing, continual basis then it's impossible for us to persevere. It's not guaranteed. Now, some preacher says then, as we have heard lately in some of the Baptist papers, we are not required to persevere. Then he's saying it's not necessary for Christ to destroy the works of the devil right now. We can live with a defeated Christ, and we can live in a defeated life, and we'll still come out victorious in the end. I don't find very much hope in that doctrine. If Christ cannot overcome Satan right now, 
then what hope do we have that he can overcome him in the future? I mean, I believe in living by faith, and I hope that you do too. But if the devil defeats Christ right now in this life, then the object of my faith is weak. There's no comfort in that. I need a demonstration of God's power in my life right now, because if I don't, then I don't have anything at all to base my faith upon. Now, let's think about it in a little bit different light. Why has Satan gone to all the trouble to grind it out with God and then finally put him in a place where put himself in a place where he's going to be ultimately defeated. Now, Satan is a pretentious, self-serving creature. And when man sins, of course, he's just acting out that character of Satan, and we've discussed that. But, but in this self-serving pretentiousness, Satan wants a creature that will serve him. He wants man under his dominion. He wants man to be in his kingdom. He wants to control him. And so he manipulates man, and and he takes away the benefits that God desires to give. Well, the only place that Satan has to do that work, the only place he can, is right here, right now. You say, oh, no, 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 no. Satan wants to get people into hell, and then Satan will be able to rule them there. Well, that's a popular notion, but Satan has nothing at all to do with hell. Satan will avoid hell at all costs. Satan doesn't control hell. That's God's place. God created and God controls it. And God puts people there. And he's going to put Satan there. So I can promise you this. Satan's trying to stay as far away from hell right now as he can get. So where is he going to do all, uh, all these diabolical schemes that he's figured out? How, how is he going to, 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 to do his work? Well, he has to do it right now. He has to do it right now with me and you because it's the only opportunity that he has. Satan does not challenge God in heaven. He knows better than that. We already said Satan is not going to challenge God in hell. He doesn't want anything to do with hell. And so where are we going to see a close-up demonstration of Christ destroying the works of the devil? Well, you have to see it right here in your own life. Now, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 6. And here is a, a great place we can go for a demonstration of this. And if you'll look here in Romans 6, we have a, a, a great picture of our victory over sin, and that picture is found in baptism. Now, Paul makes the same argument on the issue of sin that John makes. Because of Christ's work, sin cannot dwell in us. Now, we're going to start here in verse number 1 in Romans 6, and we'll conclude our study tonight by looking at these scriptures. Romans 6, verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now there's our first clue to the incompatibility of Christ's work and, and uh, sin in a Christian. We are dead to sin. Sin has been killed in us by the work of Christ. How? Verse number 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now I disagree with many people who, who say that this scripture is speaking of spiritual baptism. I think that he's talking here about water baptism, and water baptism is a demonstration of the spiritual. When we receive Christ... It's as if we went to the cross with him and we had our sins crucified with him there. Our old man is put to death in Christ. We died with him. 
So what happened when Christ died? Well, he arose from the grave, didn't he? And so if you look in verse number 5, he says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now there's what I've just described. The old man is crucified with Christ. What we were before as sinful creatures dominated by sin has been destroyed by Christ's death on the cross. And why was it destroyed? So that we would not serve sin any longer. Verse 7, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, there we have what baptism pictures. It gives a visual demonstration of the burial and the resurrection of Christ. The reason that you go down into the water and you're brought back up out of the water is to show that you died in Christ and that you were resurrected in him. And verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So the first picture that we have in baptism is that Christ was raised from the dead, and so we also shall be raised from the dead. Now, the second picture we have is that we were dead in sins, but now we're alive to God. So we have a new life where sin no longer reigns over us. And then 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under law, the law, but under grace. Now, as I conclude this evening, I, I want to point out here that Paul assumes that every Christian will be baptized. I mean, there's never any thought in the New Testament that a Christian wouldn't be baptized. And that's why I don't think it's necessary to make spiritual baptism out of this. You can't have identification with Christ and have a visual demonstration of the death and burial of Christ if you're talking about a spiritual baptism. So I think what he's saying here, that a Christian has gone through that graphic demonstration of what he believes about Christ. He was baptized to show that he died in Christ, and the physical thing that happened to him demonstrates what's happened in his heart. That spiritual picture is seen there in the baptism. And he's arguing here that if this has happened in your heart, and you were baptized to show that it has happened in your heart, then you could no, long, no more have sin's dominion over you than Christ could still be in the grave. You see, if you continue to sin, then it destroys the picture. It's like saying that we ought to be able to go somewhere in Jerusalem today, and there we would be able to find the body of Jesus Christ. Now, do you see the point in that? Somebody who says that a Christian can continue living in sin and says that a Christian never needs to become a disciple of Christ... It's the same thing as saying that Christ is still in the tomb. And that's because it denies Christ's victory. It denies that Christ was manifested, as John says, to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I don't want to be caught holding that kind of belief when Christ comes back. Those kinds of teachings are antithetical to Christianity. They're totally incompatible with the Scriptures. And I'll put it to you again this way. John won't stand for it. 
It doesn't have a place in historic Christianity. Nobody ever believed such things before. Uh, basically nobody, except the, the ones that John says were crazy heretics. It has no place in modern Christianity. and It doesn't have any place in the world to come. Now, the next time we're going to come back to this, and we're going to see another argument, and then we're going to get into these problems that are presented in the passage. What does John mean in verse number 9 when he says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Does that mean you're perfect? When you, when you got saved, did you stop sinning? Well, we'll see about that next time. Now, unfortunately, folks, it's going to be three weeks before we're able to do it. So just uh, hold on to the information that you have right now, and we'll come back in three weeks, and we'll tackle the rest of that passage and, and figure out what all, that, all those hard places are about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to be in your presence tonight and to teach your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to understand what you've said. And, Lord, most of all, for every Christian here, uh, may we have a Christianity that's proved by the work of Christ in our lives. Uh, may, may people be able to see you living in us every single day of our lives. And Lord, we just pray that you just bless us and, and give us the knowledge of your word that we need to have. Uh, bless as we sing tonight and keep us safe, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's